looking at this whole discussion, whether you side with the Stoics or, you know, Aristotle and Plato or something like this, the whole discussion is a, sh a paradigm shifting focus from what should I do to why do I fail or how do I become the kind of person that acts the way I should act. And I think that's, an, that's a valuable paradigm shift when we're doing, you know, moral philosophy or transformative philosophy. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. And in this conversation, Michael and I talk about weakness of will. We discuss why it matters, why this question was of such central importance to the ancient philosophers, and why the Stoics did not believe it exists. Here is our conversation. Do you want to kick us off, Michael? Yeah. I want to talk about this one. For me, this is a topic I really like. It's something that when I was doing my PhD in philosophy, I published on. I think it's a really interesting and important topic, both for moral development and for understanding Stoic psychology, and as a way of framing or thinking about our own social or own kind of personal failings or ways that we could personally improve. So to start things off, what is weakness of will? It's not something we talk about all the time. It's not it's something we've probably all experienced, but it's not something that is part of common language or common discussion. So weakness of will is, technically speaking, whenever you've determined a certain course of action, a certain choice to be the best thing to do, all things considered, considering all the possible things you can do that you, you agree this is the best thing to do, this is the right thing to do for yourself, but you do something different or you lack the emotional affect, the kind of personal energy to go along that line. So it's either, it's either being tempted into an opposite or not being motivated to act at all, even though you recognize this is the best thing to do, this is the best thing you should do. So it's the idea that, that the will, whatever you want to call that, whatever motivates you is weak, or it lacks the, the power to carry out what you rationally judge to be best. This is where we get the language for weakness of will. We'll dig into that a bit. You know, we have to be careful when we talk about a will, but again, it's this idea that even though the mind says one thing, the, the, the spirit cannot carry it out. It, it's also called akrasia in ancient Greek philosophy, which literally means, you know, in, in God of War is a famous PlayStation game. The main character's name is, is Kratos. Kratos is the word for power. Akrasia that's not having power. So it's like a lack of self-power. It's a lack of self-control. Uh, so you can't, you don't have the power, the self-power to motivate yourself to do what you recognize to be the best thing to do. So moving out from this, this abstract level into some particular examples, the particular examples, I have some that I've, I've written down beforehand. So something like failing to quit smoking when you've determined it's the best thing to do. This would be an example of weakness of will. You say, I really want to quit. I really want to change this habit, but I just can't help it even though I know it's bad for me, even though it's not something I want to do. Lying in bed and sleeping in when you know you have chores to do. So you want to get out of bed, you want to start your day, you want to be productive, but the, the temptation is keeping you there, keeping you, in, keeping you stuck sleeping in. Another is, you know, so along the same lines, is succumbing to any sort of temptation when you know you'll regret it later. So it's really important in weakness of will. It's not just 
it's not just this lack of action. It's this really discreet recognition that you're not doing what you want to do. And so this recognition that, oh, I'm going to regret this, or I'm currently regretting this, or this frustration mm -hmm. of why am I doing this? Another is when, another common example is when you give up on long-term plans that you know are best for you when you act for a short-term reward. So you say, look, I, you know, I want to, you know, it could be a diet, you know, an exercise regime, it could be investing, it could be pursuing, you know, an education degree, something where you say, you know, I know this is best for me. I know this will yield the most rewards long-term. I recognize that, but I'm not able to do it. I keep prioritizing short-term priorities. And another example is when you fail to become the kind of person you want to be through an act in action. And what, again, I'm pulling out is any kind of situation where you really, you're really clear on that's what I want to be doing. That's the kind of person I want to be. And you're failing to act in that way. You're failing to live up to that. One thing about weakness of will and why I think it's worth talking about, it's important to talk about, especially when we think about stoicism, when we think about self-improvement, is it's something that's tightly linked to, as I mentioned before, regret and shame. So it's these, it's these instances where you know you're acting poorly, where you recognize you're doing what you shouldn't be doing, and you can't help yourself, and you don't like yourself for it. You're frustrated with yourself for it. Any other examples you want to add or thoughts on that before I move on? Let's see. So always important to be careful with definitions here. So what we're talking about is the case where you've determined that some action is best overall, and you see that it's open to you. I think that's important, that it's something that is possible that you could have done but nonetheless find yourself taking some other course of action. So that's the only bit I would, I would also emphasize is that you have the option to do otherwise, but you don't is an important part of weakness of will here. Yeah, it's a good example. Like you could recognize, oh, it would be all things being equal. It'd be much better if I was a famous basketball player, if I was, if I was as good at basketball as LeBron James. And I'm very upset with myself for not being that good. But that's not something I can do in the moment where you, you know, you can get out of bed in the moment. You can, you know, choose not to, not to smoke a cigarette, you know, at least in that, in that one instance. So the option is available to you. It is on the table and you're taking something yeah. else off the table. Yeah. That's a really good clarity there. And in terms of definitions, because I know, I know people rightfully will not like the phrasing of weakness of will. I like weakness of will because I think it just makes more sense in English. It's more intuitive. You start talking about acrasia, you know, people aren't, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't resonate in the same sense, but it's really important that it doesn't matter if you believe in a will or not. The ancients, I think, did not believe in a will if there's some sort of modern sense. Like we speak of like free will, we speak of, you know, this idea that there's this thing inside of me that can choose freely. And then the idea, when we talk about weakness of will, it can seem like I'm saying that thing is weak. That's not really necessary to discuss the phenomenon. What's necessary to discuss the phenomenon is, as you said, is this idea that you recognize a course of action is the better thing, is the best thing, all things being equal. It's available to you and you do otherwise. And that we don't need to get complicated in the idea of a will. I don't think the Stoics believed in a will. We've talked about this before. We have a couple episodes on Stoic psychology. They believed in, you know, your capacity to reflect and choose and assent to impressions and feel motivation depending on the judgments you make. 
If you want to call that a will, that's fine. But they don't believe in something kind of external to that or separate from that that you would call a will. And then the reason I like to talk about this is that you know, this topic was really important for schools of ancient philosophy. And it is, the, the, it is a primary concern for the progressor. I think modern, modern ethics has a real focus on what is the right thing to do. And ancient ethics had a much greater focus on how do you become the kind of person that does good things? How do you, how do you transform, transform yourself, transform your emotions, your motivations, your character traits? And so when you look at philosophy as, as asking those questions, these kind of questions now that are in the realm of positive psychology, the phenomenon of weakness of will becomes much more important because I can sit down and I can open yeah. a book today and I can say, well, philosophers tell me I should do this. That's not really the, the issue. The issue is, you know, can I motivate myself to do it, even if I believe it? it? I like when I study ancient philosophy, not only are you getting access to some truths, you're getting access to knowledge, but you're also getting access to kind of a paradigm, a way of thinking about self-improvement and a paradigm that values some questions as being more important than others, like this question of virtue ethics, this idea of self-improvement, this idea of philosophy as a way of life. That's all an ancient philosophy way, way a stoic way of approaching these questions. And the question of weakness of will was really important for them because they were focused on a transformation. So maybe it's something you haven't thought about, but it's certainly something you've experienced and there's benefit to thinking about it and reflecting on what these, you know, these really smart people had to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the point about paradigm is always key. I think when we talk about some of these examples, it's useful to go, go to different modern examples, like thinking about whether you'll smoke a cigarette or thinking about procrastination or this sort of thing. But it always is a useful reminder to keep in mind that the way a lot of these ancients thought about these questions was different. So they might not have started with, say, these individual questions what should I do in this scenario? But as you mentioned previously, there might be more questions around who, sh who should you be rather than thinking about particular one-off decisions or what does my role require of me? Or in some other philosophies, you know, what is my family or some other larger unit where you're not even thinking of yourself as an, an individual making the decision? So I think that's a, that's a great point to call out that there's a, a, different, a different paradigm if different ways, different questions they may ask about situations we encounter. Yeah, totally. That's a good way of putting it, Caleb. And the, this is, a, this, there's different questions they may ask. This was a question that was really important to them. And you, you, you phrased this virtue ethics as, you know, what kind of person should I be? And every school, regardless of the answer to that question says, well, you, you at the very least want to be the kind of person that can act in the way you think is best. You know, it's a non-starter. You can have these disagreements between the Epicureanism, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the, all the ancient philosophy schools, but the best way to act, but nobody would think the person who can't motivate themselves to act in the way they think is best is, you know, is getting it right. That's going to be wrong no matter mm -hmm. your picture. So for this conversation, the way I wanted to structure it, I'm going to talk about what Plato and Aristotle had to say on this, because they're really the people who put the question on the table, set the stage for it, set the terms of the discussion. And the Stoics are then going to come in and offer unique responses to these questions that are gonna have a lot of implications for the way you think about, as you said, your own procrastination, your own kind of guilt or regret or frustration with yourself if you consider yourself a Stoic or if you're using Stoic lessons to drive self-improvement. So 
starting now with Plato and Aristotle and then getting to the Stoics. So Plato was he lived around, you know, maybe around 50 to 80 years prior to the found, founding of Stoicism and its popularity, really important figure in ancient Greek philosophy, wrote a number of, of dialogues that, that covers different topics in ancient philosophy, often with Socrates as a character. And in the Republic, which is his most famous dialogue, it's about political philosophy, but it's also really about ethical philosophy. And it's also about the parallels between an ethical individual and an ethical state. And in the Republic, Plato covers weakness of will or this phenomenon. And the way that he explains it is he uses, he uses a, a metaphor when he talks about the soul. And he talks about the soul as being divided into three parts. So that's the rational, the spirited, and the appetitive, uh, the, the thing that has appetites, des desires for pleasure. So the rational desires the good, the spirited desires honor, and the appetitive desires pleasure and physical goods, you know, nice things. So you can think of the rational in Plato's view, the person who really embodies the rational soul, that's kind of maybe a philosopher. Philosophers tend to put themselves at the top of the, at the, top of the pyramid. You can think of someone who is, is motivated by what they think is just and best and motivated by reflection on these deep philosophical ideas. You have the spirited as somebody who desires honor. So these types of people that are spirited, this doesn't just mean you're something like a celebrity. It could mean you're often framed in terms of being maybe a politician. In Plato's Republic, they're framed as the police, the soldiers, the people who, who um, regulate or enact the kind of the laws in the ideal states established by the rational. And the appetitive are the people who, as I said, like nice things, you know, want fine food, want a, a nice house, want, you know, these kind of physical pleasures. And when Plato talks about ethics, he says, look, we all have these three parts in ourselves. Even though some people have more than others, we all have these three parts and they're all competing and they're all balancing and they need to exist, right? If we didn't have even the philosopher, if the philosopher didn't have the appetitive part of themselves, they wouldn't eat food, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't feel that motivation for these things. If they didn't have the spirited part of themselves, they wouldn't feel anger when it was appropriate. They wouldn't desire revenge when it was appropriate and these kinds of things. So we all have these parts, but the key to ethical improvement is balancing these parts appropriately. So nobody's, you, you don't want your life inappropriately dominated by one of these over the other. And the, the metaphor Plato uses for this is, he, is, is one of a, a charioteer guiding two powerful horses. So if the rational part of your soul is the charioteer, then the spirited and the appetitive parts of your soul are those two horses. And ideally, those are providing motivation, they're providing energy, they're providing inspiration, but the rational part of your soul is able to direct that energy appropriately. And so for Plato, really simple answer, what is weakness of will? What's happening when I stay in bed? What's happening when I procrastinate? What happens when I, you know, get really angry, even though I know I shouldn't be angry anymore, or I, I should, this is not an appropriate time to be upset. Well, what's happening is that one of those parts of the soul is dominating the other, is dominating the rational, overpowering the rational. So the charioteer is losing control of the horses. So your, you know, your rational mind tells you to quit smoking, it considers the side effects, it thinks about how smoking will affect your long-term financial goals. And, but the appetitive part of yourself wants to smoke and these things are out of, are out of sync 
or rather they don't have the same kind of power relation and you end up being uh, directed by the appetitive part. And that's why you feel confused or guilty or feel like, you know, I know it's best, but I can't help myself because this other part of you is, is just overpowering. It's more powerful. That's a bit of, that's, that's, Plato's, that's Plato's take on it. So I suppose one question is um, something you alluded to previously. Where's this question of the will coming into play? Should we think, is that a useful concept when you're thinking about Plato's account? No. So I would say the will is not really, is as I said, it's not really going to be in Aristotle or Plato. There's some arguments, Brad Inwood makes this argument that the, we start to see this idea of the will originate in Seneca, but Aristotle and Plato are both writing before Seneca. So there's not this idea, again, depends what you mean by will, right? There's not this idea of the will as being the motivational thing that exists separate from this parts of the soul. In Plato's account, all three of these things kind of have a will, which is to say, what I mean by will is all three of these things have motivational power, right? And so there is not a will that's weak. There is three, there's three parts of yourself with motivational power that one of those is winning out over the other. Or in this case, when, when either of those beat out the rational one, then the rational one experiences this phenomenon of, oh, I really know I should get out of bed and do chores. I really know this important, but I just can't do it. I just don't feel like it. I just, and, and what that is, is that's, that's the motivational power of that kind of, you can use different metaphors. You think of the animal side of yourself. You think of the lizard brain. You can use whatever example you want or metaphor you want, but that's winning out in the motivational battle. So right. Not so a singular, not a singular will, but multiple motivational forces. It's similar to when people might talk about something like, "Oh, part of me wants to go out tonight, but the other part of me wants to stay and study." If you're a student or something of that sort, or prepare for some presentation, what have you. It's similar to that model where you almost have different selves, if not different selves, the things that are close to selves. Do you think that maps on well? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like as you, the, the language used was exactly right. Part of me wants to go party and part of me wants to stay at home. And that's Plato's point is that these are literal parts of you, right? So the, the idea is that that wouldn't even be a, that wouldn't be a metaphor. That would be an accurate description of what's going on. So yeah, totally right. Right, right. Excellent. And why does Plato think that we let this happen? So, I mean, there's a couple answers to this. One developmentally is kind of a poor education. So Plato's mm -hmm. argument in the Republic is, look, we need to train kids appropriately from the beginning so that they get this balance right from the start. Because once this cycle gets out of balance, it gets really hard. And not only that, but the, the, the thing is that We'll get to this a bit in Aristotle, but there's this idea of here, what I was talking about was the rational part of your mind says, oh, I want to stay home and study. We're going to sound very boring with these examples, but you know, I, I swear I partied a bit when I was a student. You know, the rational part of you says, oh, I want to stay home and study. And the appetitive part says, no, I want to party. That's, that's somebody who's actually pretty healthy or in Plato's view is in a pretty good position. The flip of it, as Plato would say, the tyrant that's the person whose actual part of themselves serves the appetitive part of themselves. So he would say, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the person who is very crafty in their accumulation of wealth so that they can buy all the, all the things they want or very crafty. I mean, you see this, right? You see, uh, you know, people, people with, let's say, a drug addiction can come up with very intelligent 
schemes or strategies to fulfill that drug addiction. And Plato's account here would be, look, well, that's not actually, there's not even a conflict there between the rational and the appetitive. The rational is now actually helping the appetitive part of yourself. It's become, it's become a, a slave to that part of itself, part of yourself, which for him is a, is a perversion of the natural balance. Right, right. So there was, to go back to your original question of why we let this happen, I think one is, Plato would say is, look, you haven't been raised properly, so these things have gotten out of balance. And then two, once they're out of balance, you, you're not letting it happen because you're actively, you, you're, either, you're either so far gone that you don't think anything's wrong with this, or you're trying to fight, you're just losing that fight because the other part has gotten stronger over time again with this kind of developmental picture. Right, right. You, the question letting it happen sort of almost presupposes this more modern notion of a, a will that is sometimes subject to or needs to negotiate with forces that are external to yourself. But what Plato is saying is, no, you have these three parts and that is your, uh, it's not as if you're letting, there's part of you that lets one or some other one of them happen. It's a negotiation between all of those three at one time. Yeah, that's exactly the right way to put it, is a negotiation. And Plato's argument in the Republic is, is that, you know, what is justice? Well, justice is having things do the things that are appropriate to them, you know? And so when we, if we have a just soul, an ordered soul, well, then we don't, we don't remove the appetitive part, part. We don't destroy the spirited part, but we have them do what they're supposed to do. And I mean, again, to return to the metaphor, he would say it would be like if you had a horse in the charioteer's seat. That's what happens when the appetitive part of you is controlling you. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's not doing what it's supposed to do. The, the appetitive and the spirit of parts of you are supposed to provide strong motivational information. They're supposed to direct you. But the rational part of yourself is the one who's supposed to, you know, make the, make the ultimate call on if those strong motivations towards pleasure or kind of honor and fame are the right things to do, all things considered. Yep, yep, that makes sense. Cool. So really interesting. I, mean, I love this stuff. I think it's super fascinating. So moving on to Aristotle. So Plato was, you know, he was the super, super famous, you know, probably the most famous ancient Greek philosopher. And then Aristotle was his student. And Aristotle, a lot of Aristotle's work is kind of either nuancing or criticizing Plato's work. And it's an interesting dynamic. And Aristotle talks about weakness of will, but he adds this interesting, I guess, dynamic to it where he really co contrasts it because we're talking about this in terms of moral progress and he contrasts it with the intemperate person. So that would be the person who doesn't, does the bad things, but doesn't experience weakness of will. In the translation here we can, that I'm going to read from, weakness of will is translated as incontinence. That just means lack of self-control. It's all referring to the same thing. Uh, but when I say incontinent, just know I, I mean, you know, weakness of will or acrasia here. So to quote Aristotle on this, he says, the intemperate person, as we said, is not prone to regret since he abides by his decision. But every incontinent person, that is someone with weakness of will, is prone to regret. For vice resembles diseases such as consumption, while incontinence is more like epilepsy. Vice is a continuous bad condition, but incontinence is not. For the incontinent is similar to those who get drunk quickly from a little wine and from less than it takes most people. The vicious person does not recognize that he is vicious. 
whereas the incontinent person recognizes that he is incontinent. And Aristotle's point here is that, look, even though you feel a lot of regret when you experience weakness of will, it's actually better to be experience weakness of will than to just be an intemperate person, to be a, a vicious person. So it's, this is from the Nicomachean Ethics, and the idea being that it's, it's at least you recognize what you're doing is wrong and you feel regret afterwards, or at least there's some conflict there. And if there's conflict, well, then you can be directed in the right direction. If there's no conflict, if you're just acting poorly and you don't feel bad about it, well, you might feel better in the moment. You might feel better short term, but this is actually a worse position to be in in terms of yourself, your progression. So I like that idea. I like that idea of, of and in, the, in other words, weakness of will is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it communicates, you know, we're talking about these, these like kind of non-moral examples of like smoking or getting out of bed, but we can easily use these, these more moral examples of, well, you, you, you fell into being really angry with someone or being really rude, or you fell into some sort of temptation. You know, you cheated on your partner in a way that really harmed them or something like this. We can use these kind of more moral examples. And in those cases, Aristotle's just pointing out, look, it might not feel great, but it's better to be there than to not feel that regret at all, because then it's a lapse in judgment. It's epilepsy and, and the idea being that it's this, it's this kind of really, in, really intense failing in the moment, but not something that you experience the entire time because you're not vicious. And I thought that's like, a, that's an interesting, it's an interesting flavor to it. And to go back to to go back to Plato's Plato's metaphor, you know, it's better that the the charioteer, uh, you know, occasionally fails to control the horses, than the other example, you know, where the charioteer is is directing the horses in the wrong direction intentionally, or the horses are you know directing the directing the the chariot itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, just on the last the last issue is pretty interesting because sometimes it seems like we pref when we're dealing with others. We prefer that they communicate, they recognize what the right thing to do was, even though they did the wrong thing. But other times we seem to prefer the person who is consistent and at least sort of openly displays their flaws. And it's sort of an interesting question why, why that is. And I, th I think, I suppose my first initial stab at that would be that oftentimes we sort of suspect the person who is say they apologize for what they did. They say they know it was wrong or they did the wrong thing anyway. Perhaps we suspect that they're not being completely honest. So that's just what people do now when they make mistakes. Yeah, that would be my, that would be my guess is the idea is like, it's better to know you, you're, you have a bad car you know, and the brakes don't work than to think it's a good car and you go to slam on the brakes and the brakes don't, and you, know, and you get into an accident because the brakes don't work, right? It's just that I think pragmatically we prefer certainty and then so people with people who are regretful or change their behavior or say I, kn I knew it was wrong but i did anyway it's it's kind of like it's it's very uncertain for us to relate to and that that's like that could, that's scary i think that's my call i don't think you know and that's that's an example of a friendship right if i think of something like a like mm -hmm. a child or something or if i you know if i had a child i'm sure i would prefer the child who regretted you know being mean to their friends or regretted stealing I'm sure if, if I was looking at that relationship, I would prefer that to the person who was the child who was consistent in their vice and not at all regretful. Right. I suppose there's, there's the hope that, yes, you did the wrong thing this time, but next time you'll do the, 
do the right thing. And then the, you know, we'll see what happens next time. And that'll cause people to update appropriately. It's always interesting if you now turn this back on yourself and think when you have regrets, are you like the person who is going through the motions and, and acting some play of regret? Or do you in fact regret what you just did? And I, that's another way of framing this issue of whether weakness of will happens, right? Because if it doesn't happen, then the, what, the, what, why are you, what are you regretting? Yeah, this idea of are you regretting the consequences or are you regretting the the decision? Is it do you do you recognize that I was wrong or do you just wish you existed in a world where you could get away with that and and it wouldn't have the have the consequences associated with it? But yeah, as you brought up this idea of whether weakness of will exists, so let's jump into the Stoics because the Stoics have a pretty controversial hot take here, I would say. And so we we've been going along this conversation just assuming weakness of will is a thing, right? Because we gave you some examples at the start of the conversation. Yeah, no, I sometimes I, I recognize I should do chores and I don't do them. Sometimes I, I sleep in. Sometimes I procrastinate. Sometimes I know I have a test the next morning and I go out with friends. We all do these kinds of things, right? So obviously there's weakness of, and I feel bad about it, or I think, oh, it was a bad decision. So obviously weakness of will exists. And Plato and Aristotle had some things to say about it, so they knew what they were talking about. But the Stoics, like many things, the Stoics are very famous for, for saying controversial things, right? The, the idea that virtue is the only good, we kind of take it for granted on this podcast, very controversial thing to say. They're a very strange thing to say. So they're famous for these kind of paradoxes or controversial claims. So one of the ones that the Stoics have is that weakness of will does not exist. So that entire thing we've been talking about, this idea that I recognize that path A is better to do, all things being equal, I'm able to do path A or choice A, and I choose not to do choice A, I do choice B instead, the Stoics categorically deny this is possible. They think it's, it is impossible. It never happens. Weakness of will does not exist. And the reason they argue for this is we had a conversation previous on Stoic psychology, but a quick breakdown of Stoic psychology again is they have this idea that, that psychology is a very simple, or motivation to act is a very simple four-step process. First, we receive an impression. So, you know, our friend says, hey, do you want to come out tonight, even though you have a test tomorrow? We make a judgment about that impression. We say it's either, you know, yeah, that's a good thing to do or that's a bad thing to do. We reflect on it. That's the second step. Third step is we make a decision. Then once we've made that judgment, we receive a motivation, motivational impulse, which was to say, if we decided, yes, it's good to go party, we will go party. And if we say, no, it's better to study, we will study. So on the stoic picture, you can't have team beliefs at the same time fighting against each other. You can't have different parts of your soul fighting against each other. They famously argued for a unified soul, which was very controversial at the time because you were going against Plato who talked about these three parts. They know there's only one part. There's that part that's reflecting on the impression. There's that part that's making a decision. And because of all of our motivations are the results of, of this belief, this judgment, we cannot genuinely believe something, cannot genuinely believe that we ought to get out of bed to go do our chores or that we ought not to go party and fail to have the motivation or and have our motivation fail us. We can't genuinely believe it's better to stay home and study and then go out and party. It's impossible. This is also why, maybe that sounds weird, that's also why they believe what's called intellectualism, right? Which is something we've talked about before, which is this idea that Nobody does bad willingly. 
And the reason nobody does bad things willingly is that it's impossible to think something is the bad thing to do and do it. Anytime you do something, you think it's the right thing to do. Now, you think it could be complicated, right? Like you could have to steal food to feed your family, let's say. And you could say, well, <laughs> I'd rather not steal the food to feed my family, but all things considered, I'd rather steal the food and feed my family. I'd rather take the, take the consequences of stealing to feed my family. So you can have complicated decisions. You can have multifaceted decisions, but you can't think all things being equal or all things considered given my options, this was not the right choice, but I did it anyway. Impossible. Brains don't work that way. And that's why we can forgive people because we know that if they do wrong things, the Stoic says, if they do something wrong, they thought it was the best option available to them. It might, they might be mistaken. You might be ignorant. might not be the best option available to you but you always think it's the best option available to you. And that's just how our brains work. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. I think jumping in, I, next part will be useful. It's like, how does the, yeah. how does the Stoic explain? the cases we went through. Yeah, so let's keep it going. So the, like the next thing to think about is, is, okay, well, that's all fine and good Stoics, but like we just have, we gave you all this counter evidence. We gave you all these examples. I experience that every day when I, you know, have to, have to go to work when I rather, you know, stay home and play video games. I, I experience my, my, my will being strong in that case, but sometimes I lose out. So, you know, I'm strong in that case, but sometimes I'm, I'm not. Sometimes I procrastinate. I, I, you know, I do, I do all these cases like we were talking about earlier. I don't go and exercise when I know I should. I deviate from my diet. I, you know, don't call somebody I know I should call. These kinds of, these kinds of failings that I recognize are bad things to do. So there's a paradox here, right? We, 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 that seems intuitive. The first half of this episode that people were probably nodding along. Yeah, that makes sense. I, maybe, maybe Plato's right about having three parts of the soul. Maybe not, but he's certainly not wrong that these kinds of things happen. So how do the Stoics explain this? How do they commit to this? And, and again, returning to that, we really want to commit to this because that gives us intellectualism. That gives us this, this it also, taken to extreme, gives us the Stoic claim that knowledge is virtue, right? If you know what to do, you will do the right thing. That's, that's another controversial Stoic claim. So the Stoics need to preserve, they need to save this. Because otherwise, yeah, otherwise we, we, we lose one of their most important ethical claims. We lose the, really the way they think about self-improvement. You could know what to do, but not do it, in which case you would not be, not be virtuous, just to make that crystal clear. Yeah, exactly. So the, the reason knowledge is virtue for the Stoics is because they think if you know what to do and the, right, and the reason why it's the right thing to do, you will always do it and you will always act correctly. If you have the knowledge, you will act correctly. Because motivation comes from belief, so knowledge is virtue. As opposed to someone like Plato, who says, 
you know, you could have a great rational part of your soul, but that could be controlled, that has read the good books, understands things, but is being controlled by the, the appetitive and the spirited parts of yourself. So in terms of how the Stoics are going to preserve this, they have a couple, couple arguments. So, and what I want you to think here is I, for people listening, I want you to think about your physical experience when you encounter a situation like this. So what it feels like phenomenologically, like what it feels like when you live in these kind of situations. And after this podcast, think about the next time you encounter a situation like this and what it feels like is happening in your mind and what it feels like is happening really with your motivation and your behavior. And kind of take a second to, th to, to, to feel that. So imagine yourself, I'm just going to use the getting out of bed example as an easy one because it's really simple. You're nice and tucked in, you're warm in bed, but you set a plan for yourself to clean the house today. And you know that if you don't clean the house today, you're going to have to clean the house after work or have a dirty house. Neither are worth being nice and warm in bed, but you, you, there you are in bed. So what's going on here? So the first, the first option that the Stoics provide is that you, you, you don't have a weakness of will. You have two com competing beliefs. So this is the idea that you, you don't really believe getting out of bed is best, all things considered. You think it might be good in terms of getting your chores done, but you also recognize that staying in bed is good in terms of feeling nice and staying warm. So you have two things that you value and you say, oh, I should do this. What you mean is that's one kind of, getting out of bed is one type of good thing I could have, but staying in bed is another kind of good thing I could have. And those things are competing. So you're not acting in a weak-willed way you just regret staying in bed later when now you have to do your chores. It was just a kind of spontaneous competing of beliefs. One of those won, probably the short-term belief, and then later you regret that because now you have to face the consequences of your choice. So that's the idea. There's no real, uh, no real at the same time conflict. It's just this. And this was the old Stoic way of answering this question. So this, is, this was the Stoic question up until Epictetus, who I think provides some new answers to this. But this was the way Zeno and Chrysippus answered this. And so the question is, well, it feels like it's happening at the same time. It doesn't feel like I'm, I have two beliefs. It feels like I'm being ripped in two. And they would just say, look, your mind is vacillating. It's moving between these two beliefs so quickly. It's judging one. It's picking one and picking the other, picking one, picking the other. And in that case, it feels like you're being pulled in two directions at the same time. But really, you know, our, our, our minds don't work that way. If I'm misunderstanding this view correctly, I think that an extension of this is that sometimes we have desires to do something. I desire to smoke a cigarette, or we might have desires about other desires. So I desire to not desire to smoke another cigarette, what you could call second order desires. And there's a, you can have two of these desires, or here we could talk about instead of desires beliefs, first order and second order belief. And when you say, I preferred that I had done something else, what you might be referring to there is just your second order beliefs or desires, even if it's a case that there's no sense in which on net you preferred to abstain from smoking the cigarette in this example. Yeah, so I think that's right. So there's the first order and second order belief. They can also, they also don't need to be first order and, and second order, right? Because you can right. just be choosing yeah. between two things. They can just be two complete competing beliefs with one of them being the one that you feel like afterwards you should have done or was the better thing to do. 
like they can both be pleasure related, right? Like it can be like you're sitting on the couch and you want to go out to watch a movie and you just end up lying on the couch. They can both be pleasure related or fun related. It doesn't have to be always this idea of like, well, I should be studying, but I'm not going to study. But as you pointed out, yeah, one of those can be a second order belief as well. That's the, the, the idea that, you know, you want to be the kind of person that doesn't smoke or you recognize that there's like long-term benefits to not smoking and you desire those long-term benefits. But the key point here, I guess, is that there's no, there's no weakness of will, which is this idea that you believe something is better to do. You can choose it and you're not doing it. It's not happening. You're just wrestling between two beliefs and it feels like, it feels like you're losing but really it's just the mind winning. It is, it is the mind winning and then you regret it later for whatever reason, either because as you said, it was second order. So it's the one that kind of comes to mind or because, you know, when you think about it later, you end up landing on the other one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. So that's one answer. That's the original stoic way of answering the question. And then when we get to Epictetus, Epictetus, I think because he works with students, starts to answer some new, or provide some new answers to this, or really at least emphasize them. I think these are things the old Stoics argued about or, or established, but Epictetus, you know, there's no evidence that this is new in Epictetus, but it's something that he really emphasizes because he's working with students that are struggling with these kinds of questions. So one is these two competing beliefs. The second answer is that you had a weakly held belief or you did not hold a belief very strongly. So we're getting back to our example. This is that, you know, I believe when I'm going to bed at night, I say, oh, look, I'm going to get up at seven in the morning and I'm going to go for a run. And I genuinely believe that the night before. There's no two competing beliefs. There's no wrestling going on. I just genuinely, I genuinely 100% feel that way. And I have a motivation to do that. But I hold that belief pretty lightly. I'm not very convinced on it in a deep way. And then when I wake up and it's cold and dark in the morning, I, I change my belief. I just change my mind. And I give up that first belief. And again, maybe I come back to regret it later. Maybe the next morning when I'm setting my alarm, I think, ah, I made the wrong call. But there's no magic going on here. There's no kind of weird conflict. You just, you just changed your mind because you didn't believe strongly enough. And this idea of kind of, so the Stoics will call this a weak ascent. And this is really important for ethical improvement. And this is why the Stoics thought the weak ascent is the idea of why the Stoics thought that virtue was perfect. You were either a perfect person or you weren't. You either had knowledge or you didn't. And the reason for that is that, and it, is that, you know, people that are progressing in Stoicism can believe many of the same things as the sage. We can believe many of the same things as the Stoic ideal, but, but the Stoics will argue that we believe them weakly, right? We're like the person who sets the plan to get up the next morning and go for a run. And so when we're drunk, when we're faced with temptation, when situations get really hard for us, we give up these stoic beliefs. I can be a stoic, I can be a stoic when I'm walking down the street and the, you know, he's rude to me on the street and I say, oh, amazing, I'm such a great stoic. I don't think it matters what people think of me. But, you know, when somebody calls me a terrible philosopher or some or they they get at one of my more core insecurities, I, I give that up and I get upset. It was a weakly held belief. I believed it, but I I, I didn't believe it very strongly. And so that's why, that's why virtue or, or virtue is a perfect thing because when you have knowledge, it, the Stoics even talk about this about, they give this metaphor of kind of everything locks into place like a puzzle, but then it has to solidify. It has to form in an unshapable or unshakable form. And so 
that's that's that can explain this kind of phenomenon. Weak ascents, weakly held beliefs. That's something the Stoics think is they, that's what they think is going on when we have these kind of regrets. So we change our mind. Not that some sort of subconscious again. Not that our 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 will is being weak in any kind of sense. Our our will is being strong. We're just changing our mind. Right. So let me ha- let's walk through this case a little bit. So suppose I have a instance of weaknesses of will. I intend to do A, even then, even though I thought there's some other option B that would be better for me. On this picture, I have a weakly held belief that B was better for me. It's not strong because I end up doing A anyway. So then I come up to regret my action, say. Yeah. So let me take a run at it again. Thanks for clarifying. Weakness of will is the phenomenon of you currently, if it exists, it's the idea that you currently believe this is the best thing to do. You can do it and you're not doing it. And so the Stoics would say that that temporally, you, you cannot currently believe it is the best thing to do and not do it. The idea is yesterday night when you went to bed, you believed it was the best thing to do. Yep. And then when you got up, you changed your, more, you changed your mind. So it's, not, it, it's that idea of, of it can't be happening. You can't still believe it and not do it. So you must have changed your mind on that. Yeah, so I suppose we could say it's weak in the dispositional sense. You know, things have to be abstract. Things have properties that are dispositional, which means that there are things things that will tend to happen or the things that are disposed to happen in some way. You might say that someone is disposed to be happy, which means there's a wide range of different situations they could find themselves in. And for most of those situations, they will be happy in those worlds. But so if we say that someone has a weak belief, that might mean that, you know, you're willing to get out of bed to go on a run as long as you don't feel tired when you wake up. And which is to say it applies to a low number of situations. So it might be weak in that sense. So when you wake up and you, don't, you feel tired, you're not really believing that you ought to go on a run uh, because your belief was... I ought to go on a run if I wake up and I don't feel tired. Yeah, that's a... I, I guess I want to push that a bit, Caleb. Not to get into the nitty-gritty of this. There's, there's... I think the Stoics do think you can change your mind when faced with temptation. So the view you gave was something where it was like a kind of an unreflective belief where you thought... You thought you wanted to go for a run, all things considered, but what you actually believed was you only wanted to go for a run if you weren't tired. But I think the, the, the argument here is that you can actually change your mind when you're confronted with intense situations. So you do actually believe that you want to go for a run no matter the situation. But when you're confronted with sleepiness, <laughs> you're silly examples, but when you're confronted with the, the incredible sensation of sleepiness, the demon of sleepiness, you do genuinely change your mind. So it's not just, it's not just that you didn't, because I just want to clarify the, the difference between right, right. not considering everything. This is like you you actually change it. You actually throw away that, oh, it, it is actually not better to go for a run, all things. I changed my mind. <laughs> you know, that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Cool. I think I prefer the, so I guess there's sort of two, there's a version you stated 
where you believe that you want to go on a run at 7 a.m. or the version that you could call it the I, I'm not entirely sure what, what name this view has yet. Like there's some sort of dispositionally weak belief or beliefs are actually quite narrow uh, type view where what you actually believe is that you want to get, that you will go on a run if you don't, if you aren't tired or something like that. And that's what actually reflects your state of mind the night, the night before. So these are two slightly different views. I suppose one, the main difference is in one, when you're confronted with an obstacle, you change your mind. And that's the traditional weekly held belief view that Epictetus had. And then in the other, you realize that what you believe was something more narrow and it doesn't apply to this situation. So th yeah, those are I, the two, those are the two, two, two different views. Yeah. And both are helpful. Both are helpful ways of thinking about things. And I, I absolutely believe that the other one exists, right? Where you just like, you really learn what you, what you thought. I, I mean, I think when you're bringing that example of like, we're using running and sleeping, but I think of like, you know, teenagers who sometimes feel like they have very strong beliefs, but will realize through exposure situations that, okay, you know, there's some more nuance or particularity to this. Yeah, I think that I think that's a good distinction between the two of those. I want to get to this third one, which is another interesting one that Epictetus talks about. And the third is is uncritical judgment. Uh, so so a kind of non-reflective, non-critical judgment. So this is the this is the idea that we can act in a way that conflicts with our belief without realizing we're doing that and then feel guilty later. So maybe I consider all things being equal that it's it's better to not be lazy. And I set the plan to not be a lazy person. But then in the morning, I don't realize staying in bed counts as lazy. So I am, I am in a sense, in one sense, acting contrary to a belief I currently hold to be true. That belief has not been given up. It's not been overpowered by another belief. But I don't realize I'm acting in a contradictory way. So we should almost add a nuance to this weakness of will. It is, it is you believe choice A is best and you believe choice A is best, you have choice A available to you, but you choose option B, recognizing option B is not option A or somehow cuts out option A. It's like that, that realization that, that makes weakness of mm -hmm. will's thing, that idea that I, I know in the moment, I know I'm doing what I shouldn't be doing. That's what weakness of will is. The, I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm doing it anyway. And so this idea of uncritical judgment is this idea that, you know, so we say, okay, well, what happens when these good Stoics do bad things, or these progressing Stoics do bad things. It seems like they're acting quite like they like weakness of will. And everybody says, well, no, sometimes people just act unreflectively. Some people, they don't realize they're acting against a belief they currently hold. You know, so, so the bad example is kind of a weird example here, but you could imagine someone who thinks it's wrong to hurt people's feelings, but then acts rashly, says something that hurts someone's feelings, and then in retrospects, realize they acted in a way that hurts, hurts that person's feelings or re realize in retrospect that, oh, you know, if I insult their haircut, of course, it's going to hurt their feelings. I just didn't realize saying you have a bad haircut was, was going to hurt their feelings. I didn't realize that in the moment. So, you know, the person could have navigated the situation successfully. They sat down and thought about it, but they acted in a non-reflective, non-critical way. And so they didn't realize they were acting against the core belief and they feel guilty afterwards. And they say, oh, and then afterwards they reflect and say, ah, oh, that's not, I know that's not what I should have done or that, that's not what I should have done. 
So it's a knowledge mistake caused by a careless action. And that's the third way this kind of phenomenon can come up, uh, according to Epictetus. Yep, sometimes people just uh, don't realize that their beliefs are in conflict, seeming thought. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta have a list. You gotta walk around prepared uh, to, to cross-check. Yeah, cool. So, so that's, the, that's the stoic solution. So going back over those, the, we did some, we talked about weakness of will. We gave some examples of what that is or what, what looks like it, it, it looks like it's happening, cases where it looks like it's occurring. We talked about what Plato and Aristotle had to say about why it occurs or how you compare it against other kinds of people. And then the Stoics came in, bam, controversial claim. That's actually not happening in any of those situations because that's impossible. It's impossible to think it's the right thing to do and to do something else. Here are some reasons why. You could have two competing beliefs. So it feels like there's a conflict, but it's but, uh, a simultaneous conflict, but you're actually just negotiating. You could have a weekly held belief that you give up in front of temptation, or you could just be uncritical, non-reflective. You could not realize there's a conflict there, and then you realize there's a conflict later, but you didn't in the moment when you were acting. Mm-hmm. So all things being equal, I mean, I guess I'll get your view. How do you think, do you think the Stoics do a good job of kind of solving that paradox of it seems like these situations exist, seems like that weakness of will is occurring. They say no. Do you think they're successful? What are your thoughts? I think, yeah, in general, I think that I'm doubtful that weakness of will, as it's sketched out, occurs. And I suppose the main sort of practical upshots, if you will, from these stoic views is that you think less about, say, aligning different parts of yourselves and more about what judgments am I making in these different situations and how do I act? How do I think in these different situations? And then work from there. And it's more focused on, and as a Stoic, you're more focused on a unitary picture of your mind. And you're more focused on what kind of judgments am I making in these situations than you might be if you had, say, a more platonic picture. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, right? Like, it, I think it can be ultimately quite unproductive to think of ourselves as battling with an irrational part of ourselves or battling in platonic terms with an appetitive or spirited parts of ourselves that will always exist. It's an essential part of us. I'm always going to want these, the, these pleasures. I'm always going to want to be popular or to get revenge. And I just have to, or to, you know, have these, the, these spirited reactions to situations. And it's about getting those things under control. I think that's a non-productive way to think about yourself. And, and as you said, I think you put it really well, this focus instead on judgments rather than controlling necessary parts of yourself, but saying, you know, really, what am I thinking here? What am I believing here? And what motivations is that producing? And taking, instead of saying, oh, my will was weak, you know, I really like the way, Caleb, you framed it earlier, which was this idea of, you know, oh, I thought I wanted to run in the morning. But when I woke up, I, I learned something about my belief. I learned that I didn't really want to do that as much as I thought I did, or that I only wanted to do that in a very small circumstance where I'm not confronted with the, the demon of tiredness. Like you can take failures as, as feedback about your judgments and about your belief systems rather than taking failures to act the way you think you want to act as, oh, well, I guess the, you know, I guess the appetitive part of me won that time. It's a very different way of looking at, you know, the struggles we go through as we all try to become better people. 
Yeah, that's I think that's right. I think it's also related to this idea that or one framework for thinking about decisions is suppose you're in a place where you're experiencing some some temptation and the question is, you know, what am I going to do now? Am I going to sleep in? And another way to frame that is am I going to be the kind of person who sleeps in, which means anytime I find myself in a situation like this, I will make whatever decision I make now for the rest of my life. And that's one way to frame it. And I think that can be motivating. And it also connects with the view about judgments, because in a real sense, you are judging in these situations, do I wake up or do I sleep in? And there's less room for saying something like, oh, I'll sleep in this time, but next time things will be different. And I think that the, the stoic challenge or the one challenge from these kinds of views is, well, in what sense are they going to be different? That whatever that difference is, either the situation is going to be different or your thinking pattern that's produced your decision needs to be different. And the situation's not up to you, but your thinking patterns are. And your thinking patterns in that very moment are, if they're not different now, why will they be different in the future? I suppose is, is one way to put the, put the challenge. Yeah, I mean, it is a beautiful way of putting it. And I guess the challenge is one of responsibility, right? Responsibility to clarify what you believe, to make a clear claim that if you're doing this, it's because you think it's best. And if you think it's best, it is the thing that you should do every time you face the situation. And to, that's a strong claim to make. So there's a, there's a kind of responsibility on the actions and the choices you take. And I find that, find that quite an inspiring way to frame it. Yeah, I thought that was really nice, Killed. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, well, how do you, how do you think about this? I think th there's some of the uh, general, que the question back on you. How do you think about this Stoic view of weakness of will, either theoretically or you know, practically? How does it come to, come to play? Yeah, I mean, it's in situations like this, I wish I had a bit better background in neuroscience or something like this. Like, I was listening to a podcast by Angela Duckworth, who's a psychologist at, I think, University of Pennsylvania. And she was talking about how in contemporary psychology, there's this idea that you can have your pleasure center, like whatever motivates pleasure, as being attuned differently to what produces motivation. And I was listening to it, and obviously I'm a, you know, a stoic nerd, so I was like, oh, there... I finally got a picture of how, you know, maybe weakness of will could exist because I couldn't understand how weakness, I, I, was, I was really endorsed the stoic view. I couldn't understand how weakness of will could exist. It didn't seem clear to me. And it's like, ah, that's what might be happening is that, you know, you might, you might experience extreme motivation for things that no longer yield pleasure. So the example she was using was like something of like extreme drug addicts. And so when you're a drug addict, when you start taking drugs, you feel pleasure and motivation. It's this positive cycle. But then the pleasure drops, but the motivation remains. Again, not a neuroscientist. know my ancient philosophy of mind reasonably well. But I thought that was like, oh, that's something I should learn more about. And that was something that I was chewing on. That's kind of the fact of the matter. That's something that I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to stake a claim in what I think is a contemporary psychological issue. But I think the paradigm shift yields a lot of benefits for the reasons we just talked about, about thinking, you know, 
I'm, I'm not just succumbing to something. I'm not just being weak in the moment. I'm making kind of a value judgment about this is the way life is, should be lived. And there's a kind of a stronger responsibility to that. That's the stoic view. And I also think the kind of shifting of the focus, looking at this whole discussion, whether you side with the Stoics or you know Aristotle and Plato or something like this, the whole discussion is a, sh a paradigm shifting focus from what should I do to why do I fail or how do I become the kind of person that acts the way I should act? And I think that's, an, that's a valuable paradigm shift when we're doing you know, moral philosophy or transformative philosophy. Got it. Got it. Yeah. How would the first one work? The picture is that you believe it would be better for you to do something else in the sense that it would be more, it sounds like it would be more pleasurable for you to do something else, but you're more motivated to do this other thing. Either yes. because you, I would assume that you would feel bad if you didn't do it would be some of the main motivation. Yeah. So the idea in Epictetus, I mean, Epictetus is really clear about this, that when motivation and good are necessarily tied together at a pre-rational level, so they're we have preconceptions of good such that if, if I think something is good, I have to feel motivation towards it. I have to pursue mm -hmm. it. And all that we would need for weakness of will to be true is a case where I could feel motivation towards something that I do not recognize as good. Got it. And, and, and as long as that is possible, then weakness of will is possible. So as long as, as long as it's genuinely possible to recognize something, this is not good, this does not bring me happiness. This does not provide the kind of life I want to have. But I, but I, you know, neurologically experience a compulsion towards it. As long as that is possible, there's that separation between motivation and recognition of value. If that's possible at a kind of brain chemistry level, then weakness of will would be that. Weakness of will would be the situations where, you know, the drug addict recognizes I have a compulsion. This is not good for me. This does not bring me pleasure. There is no positive effect. But I experience at a, again, at a neurological level, a compulsion to do this action anyway, because of the motivation dial is still turned up very high. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So the, the idea is you just feel a, a compulsion and there's no real value judgment behind the compulsion. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's hard to show why... How would you how you would know that's true? Especially since you know that if someone who has been using a drug frequently and they are labeled as addicted or they see themselves as addicted, once they've met that frequency, that means probably if they'll stop using the drug, they'll feel bad. And probably I would assume one reason to use a drug is that you'll not get serious withdrawals or something like that. Okay. Uh, so you so just just to throw this back at you. Your way of saving the stoic claim is to say, look, what's going on when you have a compulsion is, yeah, you don't get access to good anymore, but it becomes about staving off the bad, which you're also making a judgment is a thing you don't want, right? You don't want the bad. That's, that's your way of, is that, is that accurate? Yeah, well, that's what, that's, I think that's one, I would imagine probably for people who feel compulsions, that's the main reason to to do it is that they would feel bad if they didn't do it since it does seem like people build up a tolerance to the positive effects pretty fast 
Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then, so then the claim would be something in like the, the drug addict recognizes that by taking the drug, they're not getting access to pleasure anymore or not getting access to things they want, that they're abstaining or from or avoiding the things they don't want, which is, or some of the things they don't want, which is, you know, withdrawal, psychological distress from not satisfying the compulsion and things like that. So then you end up in a situation where instead of, it's almost, it's almost a flip weakness of Socratic intellectualism, where instead of saying mm -hmm. they do it because they think it's best, it's like they, they're doing it because they're avoiding what's worst. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, I think that's probably pretty close to what I would think is usually going on. Though I imagine that there are some edge, some edge cases to this. It seems like the sort of thing where probably, you know, the world's a big place, so probably there are compulsions that don't match up to value judgments. But for the most part, I would expect something like this is what's going on. Yeah, it could also be the case, and that's a totally reasonable thing to take. I mean, I think ancient philosophy tends to go in kind of extremes sometimes. It is totally possible to be like, weakness of will exists in extreme edge cases. That's not what's going on when you can't motivate yourself to get a, to go for a run or to do your chores or to you know not act in a selfish way that hurts your friends. So don't you know don't appeal to those edge cases and take on that kind of stoic responsibility instead. Right. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Well put. Cool. Anything else on this? No, that's it for me. Super fun. I, I really like this topic. I think it's a fun one to talk about. So glad I could I could share with, with you and the listeners. Yeah. Well, let us know what y'all think about this. If you thought it was interesting, if you thought it was useful. Always love getting the emails about our podcast and what we're doing here. So send us a note if you like. Otherwise, till next time. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.